0: We have been looking at the book of Hebrews, and the intention of the writer of Hebrews has been to encourage faith. To help these Christians who are struggling with the suffering for the cause of Christ, and they're trying to do what God wants them to do, and yet they're facing reviling, they're facing difficulties, even some of them losing property, being imprisoned. They're going through all kinds of difficulties. And so every aspect of what the writer of Hebrews is attempting to do is to encourage these Christians in the faith that they have to not give up and to not lose heart. the majority of chapter 7 has been about Melchizedek. And we saw that the intention of going through Melchizedek is to show that we have a superior high priest, one that is like Melchizedek, who is not like of this Levitical line, but has all kinds of special rights and special privileges. And you'll notice that's how he begins to round this out in Hebrews chapter 8 in verse 1. Now the point of what we are saying, is this. And you have to love when a writer does that for you. It's like, all right, now I went through all of that so that you will have this big point in mind. Verse 1 of Hebrews 8, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. His picture is very simple to say. Now, we need to understand after all that he's gone through in the past couple of chapters that we have this great high priest. He has done the priestly service that God has called him to do, but he is unique and special in a number of ways as he does this work in the true ten, that is in heaven itself, not on earth and going through a physical tabernacle and doing the physical things that you read about that we've studied from Exodus through Deuteronomy, but rather into heaven itself. He's performing these sacrifices, but please note that it speaks of him sitting down at the right hand of God. And that goes all the way back to chapter one, that after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at God's right hand. And I asked you when we started Hebrews way back there in chapter one, how many chairs are in the tabernacle that you see priests sitting down when they went to work? That doesn't happen. The whole point is that it was a continuous work under the old covenant. Jesus has now entered into the true tabernacle and the work is accomplished. Therefore, he can sit down at the right hand of God. He's still not working. He's still not having to perform sacrifices or offerings or anything like that. It is where the writer of Hebrews is going to go through chapter 9 and chapter 10 in expressing that idea, but he's already laying out this this important aspect to understand the priestly work of what Jesus has done and has taken his rightful seat then at God's right hand. In verses 3 through 5, as was just read for us, what you see then is a reminder of what the earthly priests would do. You'll see it there in verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. This is what the high priest would do. He would do his offerings. He'd do these sacrifices. This is on behalf of the people. And notice then the conclusion he draws in verse 3. Therefore, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. If the high priest that we read about under the old covenant was always making an offering before God, well, since Jesus is a superior high priest, He also has an offering to make before God. But consider that the offering that he must make must be unique. It must be better. It must be appropriate to the work that he does. He is a greater high priest who has a greater offering to make. And if you remember the point that was made back in chapter 7 and verse 27, the offering that Jesus makes is not of animals. It's not bulls or calves or things like that. But Jesus goes into the very tabernacle of God, goes into the heavenly sanctuary, and he's offering himself as the gift. So we have a greater offering that's being made, a greater gift that is being offered by this high priest and rather than it being something in his hands that he brings the offering is himself he is giving himself in this and thus you see in verse 4 now if he were on earth he would not be a priest on he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law we saw that in chapter 7 The whole point is that Jesus cannot be of the Levitical priesthood because he's not from the tribe of Levi. He must be special. He must be unique. Verse 5, They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Who would have known? That when Moses was told by God back in Exodus chapter 25 to make everything according to the pattern that I'm going to show you, which was a pattern for the whole tabernacle that was to be built. If you remember in Exodus, the reason the tabernacle was to be built was because God said, I want to dwell with my people. I want to live with them. I want to be in their presence. And so build a tabernacle so that I can dwell with my people. And when you build this tabernacle, Moses, I want you to make it exactly according to the pattern. And the writer of Hebrews seizes on the word pattern. And he says, do you understand what it means that if something is a pattern? Now, if I could go back to... Older times, I'll use a modern illustration and an old illustration. Let me go to the older illustration first. My mom, way on back, I remember watching her cutting out these very weird thin pieces of paper as a pattern to sew clothes. It was like practically transparent. Very thin, but it had dotted lines. you cut it all out. You'd lay your fabric. you put the pattern over top of it. And you would cut out according to the pattern. Now, is the pattern the big idea? Or was the clothing that you made the big idea? The clothing that you made was the big idea. It's just a pattern. It was just a piece of paper. If you're done, okay, done. Modern illustration. You kids have orthodontics. They make a mold for you to have a retainer. Is the mold the big deal? You go, hey, here's your mold here. Go home with your mold. No. The retainer is the big deal. The mold is just the pattern. Notice what's being said here about this. He says, when God told Moses to make a tabernacle, he said to make it according to the pattern. He's making something that was not the big idea. It was only a pattern of something in the future, a shadow of something to come. So this whole system under the old covenant where we read of the priests and the tabernacle and all of that, all of it was always pointing to something bigger. It was a pattern to a heavenly reality that was existing. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is slowing down on for us to consider. When Jesus goes into the heavenly tabernacle, that's the big deal. The thing on earth with Moses and Aaron and the Levitical priests, that wasn't the big deal. That was like the mold to the retainer. That was like the piece of paper pattern to the clothing. It was something showing of a greater reality to come And that's what I think is so fascinating about what the writer wants us to understand. That here is verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Do you see the conclusion? The stuff in the old covenant was a pattern. So Jesus comes along as our great high priest and notice the emphasis on better and excellent. Did you see that in verse 6? He has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises three times underscoring this is better this is better this is better you have something you have a superior high priest who has a superior offering going into the superior sanctuary by which is then of necessity that he has a superior covenant he must be bringing a better covenant since he is a superior high priest who is coming with a superior offering, entering into a superior sanctuary. There is a covenant then that is being made. There is a covenant that is a different covenant, a superior covenant, and that is where the writer of Hebrews goes, and this becomes the big deal of chapter 8. Notice then in verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, that's not the first time he has said that. He has said that a few times. He has made the point about the insufficiency of the first covenant. We saw that back in chapter 7 and in verse 11 when he said, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek he made that point back in chapter 7 if everything was perfect and flawless and draw had drawn us all close to god then why would we need a new priesthood So that was the point. In fact, in chapter 7 and verse 18, he calls this then weak and useless. It was unable to accomplish the task. It was unable to bring people fully to God. There is nothing imperfect about the covenant itself except for this problem. What does it do when people break the covenant? If you remember what we've seen throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy... What that covenant says is cursed be everyone who doesn't do exactly what it says. That's the problem. And that's why you will see that the beginning of verse 8 says for finding fault with them. The issue is us. We just simply should have done everything that God said to do and we would all be fine before God. Let the first covenant live on. But the problem is it doesn't draw us near to God. In fact, if you remember when we thought about chapter 7 last week. The point that he makes there is that even inherent in the system itself, it showed that imperfection because could any Israelite just come into the temple or come into the tabernacle under the old covenant? No, 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 no. And could any priest just come in and do whatever they please? No, only the high priest one time a year. Was ever allowed to fully enter the presence of God. It was implied in the system that there was a problem that people cannot draw near to God so we need a superior high priest who will bring a superior offering to go into the superior sanctuary so that we can have a superior covenant this is what he is setting up for us we need a covenant that is going to overcome our disobedience and notice how that's proven in the quotation that comes from Jeremiah one of the most lengthy quotations you have in the New Testament of something something from the Old Testament this is one of the longer ones and what I want you to zero in on in this quotation notice verse 8 for he finds fault with them when he says behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel with the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt now here's the highlight for they did not continue in my covenant Even in the prophecy of a new covenant by Jeremiah, notice what's laced in here. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. Well, what was the problem with the first one? For they did not continue in my covenant. They didn't do it. And notice the result. And so I showed no concern for them declares the Lord. They turned their back on me. And so I couldn't bless them. I couldn't be their God. And they couldn't be my people. They showed no concern for my covenant. They didn't care about what I'd given them. And notice how he brings out back in verse 9, even though I brought them out by the hand, even though I showed them all of my wonders, even though we've seen all the things from Exodus through Deuteronomy of everything that God has done, they showed no regard for my covenant. And so God says I had to turn from them. I had to be able to turn from them because they would not remain faithful to me. I want you to think about just how this could be the end of the quotation and it could have been the end of Jeremiah's prophecy would not have God had every right to say I made you this covenant and I brought you out of Egypt I took you by the hand I did great wonders and signs for you and I revealed my law I revealed my ways I gave you my presence and I was with you and you did not remain in my covenant. You showed no concern for my covenant. You didn't do as I say. And therefore, as verse 9 ends, so I showed no concern for them. Period. End of story. That could just be the end of it. God could just say, I tried. I gave you a covenant. I said, do them and live. And you can be my people. The problem is absolutely none of you have ever done that. you have shown no concern for my covenants, what God says. And Israel is the test tube, proof of that, the experiment. As God gives them every advantage, every privilege, God speaking through prophets, sending miracle workers like Elijah, and yet they didn't continue in my covenant. What's amazing about God, is that this isn't the final word. Notice what he says in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I do a new start. I'm going to give you a new covenant. And notice what he's going to describe is a completely different covenant. Because how useful is it going to be for us for God to come along and say, okay, you broke the first covenant, so I'm going to give you a new covenant and it's going to be exactly like the prior one. Do all these things and you will live. (laughs) We go, well, that didn't work the first time. (laughs) It's not going to work for us the second time. If the goal of the covenant is perfection, that we must do everything that is written in the book of the law, the new covenant is not going to help us any more than the first one did. There must be something different, which again is speaking to why he spoke so much about Melchizedek. We have a superior high priest who has a superior offering, who has gone into a superior sanctuary with his superior gifts so that we can have a superior covenant. We need something different. We need something that's not like the prior covenant. Something that's going to solve the problem of us drawing near to God. And that's the answer he now gives. Look at verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. Notice what is described as different. I, God, will write my laws on their heart. Now, if you've been with us on the Sunday nights in Deuteronomy, you may recall that back in Deuteronomy 6, as well as in back in Deuteronomy 11, God told Israel to put the law on their own hearts. They needed to write them on their hearts and bind them before their eyes and put them on their foreheads and get the law in. In this covenant now, God says, I'm the one that's going to write these things on their hearts. Which, by the way, if I can plug you for Sunday night tonight, tonight is Deuteronomy 30. This is going to go right into that, to this very point that the writer of Hebrews is making. I encourage you. To be here tonight for them. You'll see this connection back to what Moses was speaking about this very thing. God is going to write it on their hearts. No longer then is God's covenant going to look like how Israel treated it. What Israel did is they treated the covenant as something that was an obligation. It wasn't a relationship. It was just simply... The do's and do nots. We need to do these things and not do these things. Even still, the Ten Commandments are portrayed that way. Are they not? Thou shalt, thou shalt not. And Israel often took it that way. It's just simply obligations, it wasn't something that was their heart's desire. It wasn't something that they enjoyed. It wasn't something that they desired to do. It was just simply the rule book. It was simply a burden. It was simply an obligation. That's why there were the few in the Scriptures who would come along and speak of God's laws differently. Where you would have, like David, who saw the law of God as if it were honey dripping from a honeycomb in Psalm 19. There were those who would pin that and say, no, God's law is not an obligation. We don't see God's laws that way, but unfortunately Israel did. It wasn't their heart's desire. It wasn't written on their hearts. It wasn't pouring from within them. And so God says in this new covenant, that's the way it's going to be. My people are going to have my laws on their hearts and minds. And not only that, in verse 11 he says, And they shall not teach each other his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Nobody who belongs to this covenant is going to be taught of God. Nobody is going to have to be taught who is the Lord to belong to God and to be in this covenant. You would already know God. You would already have a relationship with him to belong to the covenant. This would not be like the old covenant where you would enter into it as a child, and then one day, you would come to know the Lord as you grew up. If you were going to be in this covenant, you already have to know God. You already have to know who He is. And you have to have His laws written in your minds, written in your hearts, Fully eternalized. What I want us to consider is that. What the writer of Hebrews is expressing. Through the prophecy of Jeremiah. Is that belonging to God. Is far more. Than just an awareness of God's laws. Belonging to God. Is far more than just understanding. The obligations of the covenant. Belonging to God would not just simply be expressed by some external activities. That's the way Israel had perceived the law. And they had failed it. And God says, when I have this new covenant that comes, there is going to be a weighty and important difference. You're going to know me. It's going to be your heart's desire. And you're going to know who I am. And you're going to desire me to such an extent that it will be like my laws are emblazoned across your heart and will be emblazoned upon your minds. You will not see God as obligation or responsibility, but a heart's desire to serve and obey. This is the covenant that Jeremiah was projecting would come the covenant that the writer of Hebrews says is the superior covenant that has come from our superior high priest. We do not then belong to this covenant except in any other way, but it is our heart's desire to know God and obey God. I believe for far too long covenant membership in Christ has often been defined so much by externals I could probably catch you with this phrase if I said how do you know if somebody's faithful what would be the long time standing answer to that they went to church on Sunday that is the exact opposite of what Jeremiah was prophesying The exact opposite of what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out. This is not going to be measured by externals. It's not going to be sufficient and say, I belong to the covenant because I went to church, or I was baptized, or every time the doors were open, I was there. That's not the definition of belonging to this new covenant. That is a mentality that comes from the old covenant. That old system. And here the writer of Hebrews says, that's not it. It is not because you sit on the pews that you belong in this covenant, because you've been baptized, you grew up in the church, or any of those kinds of definitions. Here's the definition that he's given. God's laws are emblazoned and imprinted on your mind and heart. Or to put it the way the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3, it's become so internalized that it's transforming you into the same image of His Son from one degree of glory to another. There is a transformation that is going to happen. It's not going to be like Israel where they just seem to follow the rules and they had the sacrifices, they did their offerings, they did all of the externals, all the perfunctory things are done. When we've studied through the prophets, you've seen that. Israel never stopped the sacrifices. They didn't stop the priesthood. Everything was still going on and God condemned them and sent them into exile for it. Because that's never the kind of people he's wanted. So he comes along and he says, I'm going to give a superior covenant. And the people who have a knowledge of God. And that doesn't mean, okay, yeah, there's a God. But they know God through his word, through his laws, through his teachings to such a degree that the word of God is internalized in them, law on hearts and minds. He says, these are the ones who are my people. In fact, notice verse 12. These are the ones that God says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. These are the forgiven ones. The forgiven ones are not the ones who sit on pews, go to church, grow up in the pews, or are baptized, or lead in worship, or things like that. They know God. His laws, His ways, His teachings are emblazoned, Upon their minds and upon their hearts. And I want you to think about this. This is the covenant we need. This is exactly the covenant we need. We need a covenant that doesn't require perfect obedience. We need a covenant that does not say, if you fall short of one law, you are condemned of all the laws, James reminds. We don't need that covenant. That one is our doom. We need a covenant that can fully deal with our sins. And I hope that the weight of verse 12 will never be lost upon any of us. Verse 12. I will remember their sins no more. Isn't that what we need? We need a covenant that God can say, I forget those sins. I am not going to hold those sins against them anymore you know there's a lot of things in life a lot of probably people in life a lot of times in life where don't you wish you could just have a fresh start you could just kind of go let me erase all this and let's just go back to zero and start over is there a way to just forget all the transgressions forget all the mistakes forget all of the mess just forget all the dumb things I've said and done can we just erase all that and just start over I wish we had a reset button sometimes for life right do you see that God gives you that reset button with him I'll remember your sins no more we'll just forget all that all of that mess all the things that you've done for the days, weeks, months, years, your whole lifetime. Whatever they are, however many they are, for as long as it's been, no matter how bad they are. <coughs> I will remember those sins no more. That's the covenant we need. That's the fresh start we need. That's the superior covenant that we have that is the picture is that with God we can start over I could do a whole side sermon for 30 minutes here on we should offer that fresh start to each other that's what it means to be forgiving of one another I'll let you run that sermon in your mind for those 30 minutes because I got to finish this one up but it's what that looks like it's what we want but let's end with this Since we have a new covenant, a superior covenant, we need to just bask in the glory of that. I feel like that we can be like Israel in a lot of ways. You imagine over time how monotonous and mundane the laws of God became to Israel. Even though God had rescued them from Egyptian slavery... Parted the Red Sea, brought about miraculous plagues, kept the people safe, fed them, protected them in the wilderness, and brought them into the promised land, defeated the enemies, expanded the borders, and they just kind of looked at the covenant as nothing. God's words are they didn't continue in my covenant, they didn't care. It is so easy for us in this new covenant to do the exact same thing. Yep, Christ died for our sins and we've been set free and gave forgiveness and eternal life's ahead and completely show no regard or concern to continue in the covenant because it becomes mundane. We need to bask in the glory of what this covenant means for us that we are able to have a fresh start with God and that perfection is not the standard. The standard that we must live by is God's laws written on our minds and on our hearts. This is going to be the reason why I will have been and I will continue to stand on my head and proclaim that our greatest goal then and our greatest need is that we have to internalize God's word. And so every time we get together, we need more of God's Word because this is the thing that needs to be digested into our lives and blazoned on our minds and written into our hearts because this is what it means to be the people of God. If we are not eating, drinking, breathing, just enjoying the Word of God, let me just say this, then we're not the people of God. That's the definition of who belongs to the new covenant. They have internalized and loved the word of God so much that it just pours out of them. They do not look at God's word in any different way. Which then is the challenge that I'll give for us this morning and then the lesson will be yours. Ultimately then our approach to God And our approach to God's word needs to be completely different than how Israel approached it. I think there's two ways to probably look at God's word and to look at his covenant. The way Israel seems to have looked at it, and it can be our tendency as well, is to treat God's word like a research book. It sits there on the shelf, and you will access it only as needed. I think there's very few people who have ever said, you know, I'm going to sit down and read the dictionary. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. (laughs) Just break this thing out. We don't do that with research writings, right? With reference works. They just sit there and we do our thing. And then every once in a while you go, oh, I don't know what that means. Let me grab that book. That's what Israel did. They just lived life, had no regard for the covenant, did whatever they pleased. Every once in a while go, oh, wait, we're in trouble. Hey, God, help us out. Oh, wait, there's enemies. Help us. Oh, wait, there's a famine. Help us. Oh, wait, I've got trouble. Help us. It was like a reference book. They just access God as needed. That's one way to approach God. But notice that's not the picture of belonging to the covenant. Those are not the people of God who do that. The other way is to approach God's word as our full heart's desire. God says in the new covenant. They're not going to look at my covenant as something that has to be done from time to time. As something that's an obligation. As something that they will access here and there. God's word is going to be written on their hearts. And therefore that means that we look at God's word as our very life. It is everything to us because it is the only way to get to know God. Think about the chain that the writer of Hebrews has established. Only those are in the covenant are those who know God and have God's words written on their minds and hearts. It's the only way to belong to the covenant. There's no other way. Doesn't matter all the other stuff you do. You can be baptized, show up to church, sit on the pews, grow up in the church, all that. If you don't have God's law in your heart, in your mind, all that other stuff means nothing. Nothing. God's law is written in your heart, written in your mind. Have to know God. Then shouldn't this be everything to us? If that's the only way to belong in the covenant? would be give me as much of this as possible. This is why David can speak of it as honey. How do you take God's laws and say, I desire it? How do I take this word and go, I want every bit of it? Because you know, that is the only way to know God, have God's laws written in your heart. And let me bring in verse 12 again. For God to be merciful to your iniquities and forget your sins. It's the only way. And so I'm going to ask you as we close then to embrace the Word of God, to taste the Word of God, experience God through the Word, immerse yourself in the Word of God. If we could like get rid of an idea, this is not a Bible. This is God's life to you. It's not a research work. It's not a dictionary. It's not something that sits on a shelf or a coffee table. It is life-breathing, life-giving. Don't treat it as a dictionary. Don't treat it as I access it when I have trouble. Don't treat God as the God of emergencies. You're not in the covenant if you do. Come to know God Do not neglect the Word of God and let God be your life, be your oxygen, be your food, be your drink, be everything. And do not neglect the hope that you have in God. Well, how encouraging the writer of Hebrews was. You don't have a covenant that demands perfection. You have a covenant that just requires you to know God. That's all you have to do is you just need to know God. Are we overjoyed at that prospect? Or is it, you know what? I want to do what I want to do. Live I want. I hope we are encouraged to see the superior covenant that we have in Christ allows us to draw near to God. And we encourage you today to turn away from your sins and draw near to God and come to know Him deeply to immerse yourself in God's Word, to come to know Him so radically that it changes your life. That begins really at the waters of baptism. That's what Romans 6 is talking about. You are raised to walk in newness of life. This is what you're saying in baptism. Not that life, new life for God, immersed in Him. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?